You're listening to Pastor Mike Harvey of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you'll be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Go and Do Likewise, recorded on Sunday, August 19th, 2018. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, hello. You can do better than that. Hello. Uh, greetings. Where, where else do you get greeted three times when you come into church? Maybe four times. You walked through the doors and got greeted. You came in here and you got greeted with a wonderful spread of coffee and juice and water and cookies. At Freeport, we get cinnamon rolls. It's awesome. I do want to uh, give a shout out to our friends in Indiana who are listening. Uh, Petroleum Valley, uh, Freeport, a personal favorite of mine. And, and, and I do, have to, I do have to say one thing in particular. I, I need to point out there, and I, I need to say, hey, Ed, this is just kind of like an inside joke between Ed and I. Hey, Ed, I just want to let you know I'm preaching today. So I know you're laughing. Uh, but it's good to be here. Uh, I don't want to forget Indiana as well. I don't want to forget uh, India as well as those who may be listening to us in the jail. Uh, God is really working through and in harvest, isn't he? And it's not the building, is it? It's you. And I can't uh, emphasize more uh, the announcement, the reminder about community groups. Here's the reality about community groups. Are you doing life together right now? To a certain degree, yes. But you come in, you grab your coffee, you grab your cookie, you sit down, you sing, you stand up a few times, uh, you greet one another, and then you leave. That's really not doing life together. Community group gives you an opportunity to do life together when things get tough. Most of you don't walk in here, walk in here and say, my life's a wreck. You don't because that's just the way we live our lives. We, we put ourselves together when we come to church. But see, that's not what community is. And so I want to really encourage you, find a community group where you can be you. You can share the, the ups and the downs of life knowing that you're not the only one who's going through it. There's somebody else who has shared or will share your experience. And scripture says that we have an opportunity to comfort others and to comfort those as God has comforted us. And you can't do that separated from community. So investigate a community group. There's tons of them at Harvest. Well, we are almost through our series on parables. We have been looking at parables this summer. I am looking forward to the, to the fall in a couple, a couple weeks, we'll be launching off into a series on 1 Samuel. Uh, narratives are awesome, awesome uh, passages of Scripture to read through. Sometimes you read long sections of the Scriptures, but, but really only have an opportunity to focus on one or two verses that are just packed with some really good stuff. So 1 Samuel's coming around the corner, and uh, Pastor Mike will be kicking that off, I think, either the first or the second Sunday in September, but we'll find out. Uh, If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We're going to be looking at a very, very familiar parable, despite the fact that I do believe our culture is becoming more and more biblically illiterate. Um, And I see it most often in children. Um, We had our vacation Bible school, and you guys had your, uh, all of our campuses had their vacation Bible schools this summer. And, And the thing that is startling to me are the kids that come in that have no context for any of the stories of the Bible. Who's Moses? Who's Abraham? Who's Noah? What's the ark? They just have no awareness anymore. 
Uh, This parable that we're going to be looking at today, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is widely known. In fact, I don't have statistics for it, but I I suspect that it's one of Jesus' most well-known parables, probably second only to what, what do you think? The prodigal son, right? Those are probably one and two. Prodigal son and then the parable, this parable here of the Good Samaritan. The story has been quoted and referred to often and not just in churches and in sermons, but in public addresses on, secular, on the secular scene. We hear about Good Samaritans all the time, don't we? Especially when there is a local or a national tragedy, a hurricane that comes through that does devastation. We hear all the stories of the heroes, the Good Samaritans who kind of came out of the woodwork and rescued people. And those are all good things. Despite the fact that the parable is well known, I think it's often misunderstood. I think it's often misapplied in many respects too. Most people only know the bit that says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was the man who got caught by robbers. And so on. And then they fit this little story conveniently into this framework. You might hear someone say something like this. You want to know what a real Christian looks like? Love God, love your neighbor, and that means helping someone when his car is broken down by the side of the road. That is what a Christian is. Or maybe you'll hear something like this. As Christians, we ought to be, what we ought to be doing is we ought to be showing compassion on those in need. We shouldn't be concerned about doctrine. We shouldn't be concerned about conversions or about sharing the gospel or evangelizing or doing missions. Those things are too scary, too threatening. We just need to serve people. No, we just need to get back to the business of helping people because that's the essence of what Jesus says we ought to do in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Loving God and loving your neighbor, certainly helping people who are broken down by the side of the road, while important, is really not the full picture of this parable. The story is, in fact, given by Jesus to show a lawyer And when you think lawyer, don't think of lawyers of today. And I'll I'll unpack that in a second. The story is, in fact, given by Jesus to show a lawyer, and you and I, for that matter, the deep deficiency of our hearts regarding pride and self-righteousness, regarding my desire to make myself right with God along with my stubborn tendency to reduce holiness to something I can manage. You know, even in the Old Testament, we see stories of God's people trying to manage God and getting in deep trouble. God was very specific when he told the Israelites, when you bring the ark in and out of the temple, when you bring the ark of the covenant in and out of The city, you need to do it in a certain way. In fact, how were they supposed to do it? The priests were to carry it. Well, David goes and rescues rescues the ark from the Philistines and he sticks it on a cart and Uzzah is walking by the cart and the cart, the ox starts uh, faltering a little bit and what happens? Uzzah reaches out and he puts it, steadies the ark and, and gone. He dies. And so you and I, we always want to reduce the, manage, reduce the holy to something that we can manage, don't we? We dumb down the, 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 the stories. We dumb down some of the things of the scripture to make them more palatable. And, and this is one that I struggle with. You know, Jesus did a couple things on the night he was betrayed. 
One of them was he washed his, washed his disciples' feet. And I know churches who take that very literally. Are, are we to take that literally? Or are we to say, well, you know, that's really very uncomfortable for me, so let's make it manageable and just care for one another and just serve one another. Maybe Jesus, I mean, Jesus, after all, did tell his disciples to do this as, I had, have I, as I've done to you. But we make it manageable too. I, I've got a foot condition. My, my socks smell, my shoes smell. Of course they do. But we're family, aren't we? <laughs> okay, just keep that in your mind. So let's uh, take a look at our parable for today. Luke chapter 10, verse uh, 25 through 37. Perhaps you're there. This is what I want to do. I want to read some, uh, some passages of it, draw some uh, points from the passages, and then spend some time uh, applying this to our lives because I think there's a tremendous amount of application for us tonight. Verse 25 begins, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm not going to assume the motives of this lawyer, but what, what were his intentions? Was he intending to trip Jesus up? Was he trying to catch Jesus teaching something different than the law might indicate, or was he a sincere seeker? Commentators, uh, the opinions vary on the motivation of this guy. Personally, I've taken a stand on, on, on why he uh, tested Jesus. I don't think he really was seeking to be taught by Jesus. Nor do I think uh, he was interested in finding out the answer to uh, the way to eternal life. He believed he had that locked up. See, as a lawyer, uh, this was not the kind of lawyer that you would go to if you had a traffic ticket or if, if you were committed a crime. This was a theological lawyer, so to speak. This was a, uh, a person in religious circles who was an expert in the law of Moses and, and slicing the law of Moses so finely uh, that oftentimes these lawyers would be um, referred to by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite to, to answer disputes especially against competing rabbis who had differing opinions on how they ought to live out the law of Moses. So they would go and find one of these religious lawyers who would interpret for them the minute details of what the law said. So he had a lock. He had a lock on all these things. He does not believe that Jesus, who he viewed was an uneducated man, could possibly teach him anything. This man would have been highly skilled in understanding the very, thing, the very question that he already asked Jesus. On the face of it, this question seems to be a good one, doesn't it? How do I get eternal life? You know, you and I ask that question almost every day. We don't ask it perhaps verbally, and perhaps we don't even know we're asking that question. But the reality is, is because I believe you and I have been created in the image of God, there is a spark of divine in us. Don't get, I'm not going to get new age on you. I'm not talking about, about the divine that we need to bring out by some exercising. We've been made in the image of God. The Apostle Paul says we suppress that truth, don't we? But look what Ecclesiastes, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes, that long title, 3 verse 11 says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. 
You, you and I are seeking eternity. You and I look for eternity in all sorts of different places. You and I look to answer the tough questions of life. Why am I here? What's my meaning and purpose? Who put me here? That's because we're created in the image of God and we want those answers. We want those deep answers. Some of us look for those answers in addiction. In fact, that's the, that's the only alternative to Jesus, really, is our own self-made way of answering what is eternal life? But look at what Ecclesiastes says. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And not only can we not find out what God has done beginning to end, we have uh, that sin nature that actually darkens our minds. And so we don't even look for truth. Even when it's staring us in the face. Despite the fact that it's a good question, it's a flawed question though. Think about it. Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing you and I can do to inherit eternal life. The simple fact is you and I cannot save ourselves, can we? We do not have the resources to obtain eternal life. No amount of human power could even come close to paying the debt we owe. And after all, do you have to do anything for an inheritance? No, it's not like, it's not as if inheritances are payment for services rendered. I have never been in a hospital room when there has been someone on their, die, on their deathbed who has pulled their family together and has said, son or daughter, you have been such a good son, I'm giving you this inheritance. No, that's not how it works. There's nothing we do to gain an inheritance. We get it when our loved one passes on. That's what an inheritance is. It's, not, it, it's just not how it works. But there are a lot of people who look at eternal life along those lines, though. If I'm good enough, if I try hard enough, then, may, then maybe I'll squeak in. I, I don't know about you, but I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of people, and I hope that you've had opportunity to talk to a lot of people and to share the gospel with them, but one of the questions that I used to start off with, and I don't do, don't do it anymore very much, was... Uh, if you were to die tonight, would you be certain that you'd go to heaven? Most people would say, absolutely. The second question is, is more telling, though. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Most people, they kind of scratch their chin and they go, whoa, that's a little bit more difficult than the first question. Yeah, it is a little bit more difficult, but you know where they go? Well, I, I've, I've gone to church. I've gone to church most of my life. I, I, I try to do good things. I, I help my neighbor. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not immoral at, at my job. I, 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 don't, I don't look at porn on the internet. I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't do, I don't do, I don't do, I don't do. I do, I do, I do. And, and, and really, it's all about energy and effort, isn't it? But notice Jesus' reply, starting in verse 26. He said to him, the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Great question for someone who is schooled in the law of Moses. Great question for those of you who are teachers in here and looking forward to going back to school. Some of you perhaps aren't looking forward to yet, but I can guarantee you this. There will be a smart aleck in your class and one of his jobs throughout the year will be to try to trip up the prof. 
And that's what this guy's doing. He's trying to trip up Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He puts the question back on him. What do you, how do you read it? How, what, do you, what do you think it says? Well, the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now the lawyer was quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And Jesus is very simple. Jesus asks the question, the man gives the answer, and then Jesus responds. And what is Jesus' response? Good answer. But he didn't stop there, did he? He, he? he went on with, now do it. That's where you and I get tripped up. I, I think sometimes we think, well, isn't, isn't knowing the scriptures enough? Maybe, maybe you've done some seminary work, or maybe you have a PhD in theology or a doctorate, and you're moving towards it. That's, that's not enough. You, you, you can't stop there. The real question is, how are you putting it into practice? Jesus says, do this, and you'll live. If you really want to know the answer to the question, how does a man attain eternal life? The law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How are you doing in that department? I should pause and let you ponder. How are you doing in loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbors yourself? The funny thing about Deuteronomy and Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Leviticus don't stop there either. They not only require that one keep the law, they require that one keep the law, the whole law, perfectly. Perfectly. No mistakes no failures, no omissions. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Anyone who meets such a standard lives. If you and I meet that standard, we don't need Jesus. If you and I could even come close to that standard, we wouldn't need grace. If Adam and Eve could have done this perfectly, if Israel could have done this perfectly, if you and I can do this perfectly, we have arrived. And because God is just, he would have to reward us with eternal life if you and I could perfectly obey the law. But we can't. We cannot do it. The honest truth is that most human beings don't love God this way and no human being apart from grace even stands a chance of getting close. Not only do human beings, apart from grace, not love God with their whole heart, they barely give him leftovers. The usual human approach is to serve self and the world, and then, from whatever is left, throw a few scraps God's way. I'll I'll, I'll pray if I have time left over at the end of my busy day. I'll read scripture if it doesn't interfere with my watching of sports or Keep me from my weekend adventures. I'll put money in the collection plate after I pay my mortgage, my bills, my cell phone plan and see what is left over. I'll follow the teachings of Jesus so long as they don't interfere with my politics or my worldview. So God barely gets leftovers from most people and that includes many who describe themselves as religious. Religious. 
And we haven't even considered loving our neighbor yet. Jesus answers the lawyer, do this and you'll live. He might as well have told the lawyer to uh, leap a tall building in a single bound. He might, have, he might have as well told the lawyer to define the universe and, and give uh, three examples of, of the universe defined. Does the lawyer really have any idea what it means to do this? I gotta tell you, I don't even have a full idea of what it means to do this. I, I, I fall short every day. I fall short in thought, word, and deed every day. I neglect to do what I know is right. And what does scripture say? That is, it's sin. I know if you're like me, you've done that today as well. You perhaps have neglected something you should have done. Or maybe you thought that thought. Or maybe you looked across the street at the condition of your neighbor's yard and you began to judge. We do that, don't we? Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Anything less, of course, is idolatry. And, and you know, the, the, rich, the lawyer here um, begins to squirm. Uh, and he's looking for a loophole. And, I, and maybe there's some of you that are looking for a loophole tonight. I, I don't, I don't want to sit here tonight and hear these difficult things. I'd really rather just keep my nice, convenient uh, life for Jesus in a convenient little box that I can control. I know that's what I would like. I don't want God to pop outside of my box. But he does. You can't control him. You can't manage him. I mentioned that anything short of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is idolatry. And that's what we are. I think Calvin said that we are idol factories. We create idols out of everything. And, and the things we create idols, idols out of are good things. Family, money, jobs, popularity, worldly goods, those are all good things. Those are all gifts God's given to us. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, I love my neighbor sometimes, especially the nice ones. I have a hard time with the ones that have their chainsaw ripping at seven o'clock in the morning. Or maybe, there, maybe there's the guy at night at 11 o'clock. He's got his nice little fire going on there and he's got three or four kids. It's 11 o'clock at night. And you know what happens at night in between houses? Sound echoes. I'm trying to sleep. I don't like him that. I don't like him very much. In fact, I want to go over there and throw a bucket of water fire. I say, go to bed, man. It's too late. I want to call the police and, 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 and have the police come and, and give them a, a sound warning or you're, you're breaking the sound ordinance. I don't want to love those guys. I don't want to love those people. But my other neighbor has a bad back, so I'm more than willing to go over and cut his grass. I'm more than willing to go and take his trash out. That really gives me a feeling of self-righteousness. That really gives me the perspective that I am, I've got things going on right now. Is that loving my neighbors myself? 
See, my neighbor across the street is one thing, but what about the man who lives on the other side of town? What about the man who lives in a neighborhood that has a reputation that isn't like the neighborhood I live in? Is that my neighbor? Should I love him the way I love myself? We are the lawyer. I'm sorry to say that. We're the lawyer. You and I are the lawyer. We're, we're trying to justify ourselves. And, and I really should have put this in, in the map, but this is really what I think the point of Jesus' parable is is that he gave this parable to the lawyer because the lawyer was self-righteous and we are self-righteous. And he wants to deal with that self-righteousness and that pride and that arrogance that wants to manage God's holiness. We are the lawyer. We all struggle with trying to justify ourselves to make ourselves right to some degree or another. Verse 29 And of course, the scriptures even tell us, but he, desiring to justify himself, he started to squirm a little bit. Wait a minute, I'm not that bad. Said to Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I think the lawyer makes three critical mistakes. The first mistake I've already alluded to. He assumed that he had fulfilled the first commandment because he was religious. He was learned. He was book smart. You'd think this guy would be uneasy about his ability to love God completely. Instead, he seems more worried about the command to love his neighbor, which is the second mistake. Why? And here's my theory, and it's only a theory, is that it's difficult to test one's love for God. How do you assess your attitudes and your, de- your devotion, your relationship with God? It's very difficult, isn't it? But if you want to find some way to measure your love for God, you can look at your love for your neighbor. Isn't that what the book of James says to us? A man who professes that he has faith and yet doesn't show love for his neighbor is a man with a false profession. What about 1 John? 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. I find it interesting that a title for one of Chuck Colson's books is called Loving God. How many of you have read Loving God by Chuck Colson? I don't see many hands. But here's the subject matter of the whole book. It's about loving man. It's about loving your neighbor. The third mistake of the lawyer was in the way that he wanted to argue a precise definition of neighbor. If only our friends and those who are easy to love were our neighbors. Then perhaps this man fulfilled it in an imperfect way. It all depends on how broad the definition is. And so Jesus, let's make it narrow. Lord Jesus, give me a shot here. In other words, if, we are, if, if, if there are too many neighbors running around with the requirement that I love them as myself, I might not be able to pull this thing off. So let's, let's reduce this and make it manageable, Jesus. Let's dumb down. Let's minimize. What and who is meant by my neighbor? And that's what the flesh does. It salutes God's law, but doesn't really take it seriously. The lawyer has to do this because he wants to fulfill the law in his own merit and power. And that's our motivation deep down inside. 
If we believe that we can obtain eternal life with our merit and power, we're going to make it manageable, aren't we? I sure, I sure am. The lawyer knows the right answer, but he's not living the right answer. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, not to say that doctrine doesn't matter, that conversion doesn't matter, that the gospel doesn't matter, that missions don't matter, that evangelism doesn't matter, and that what we ought to be doing is going and showing compassion to people. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan to do what? To show this lawyer and to show you and I the sins of our heart, the sin of our self-righteousness. And so let's look at these verses, verses 31 to 35. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now in this parable, Jesus doesn't deal directly with the first commandment to love God, does he? Remember, where is the lawyer? He thinks he's got that locked. Jesus goes to the neighbor commandment. Why? Because he knows the man's heart. I think about Jesus' encounter with a lot of people, especially the woman at the well, very similar to this. Jesus knew this woman's heart, didn't he? And he communicated straight to her heart. And that's why Jesus goes to this parable. He knew what this lawyer needed. He knew the condition of his heart. This man's a Jewish lawyer. He has utter contempt religiously and probably ethnically for Samaritans. And so Jesus tells a story where a priest and a Levite who ought to know what is right to do, who would be well respected by this man, are not the heroes of the story. But the one that this guy hates, more than anybody, more than anybody in the world at the time. And in the course of the story, Jesus does several things. First of all, he shows you how wide the love command is. He shows us how wide and how deep it is. How wide is the love command? The, love, the command to love your neighbor extends even to people you have contempt for. Think about that. First of all, I, I'm, I'm hoping you won't want to admit, even in your heart, that you have contempt for somebody. But maybe you do. Maybe it's a spouse that hasn't treated you well. Maybe it's a neighbor who hasn't, maybe it's a boss who hasn't treated you well. Maybe it's another family member. Do you have contempt for them? See, the love command even even requires you to love them. And, And here's why. Because you were unlovable. Scripture says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Do you have enemies? Do you have people that make it difficult for you to live for Jesus at work or at home? I would consider them my enemies. You know what? You are called to love them. That's really hard. It's really, really hard. 
He shows how deep the love command goes too. Notice that this Samaritan, perhaps on his way to a business trip in Jerusalem, stops. He spends an entire day with this guy. He medicates him. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn. He gives two days wages for the innkeeper to take care of this guy. And he says, look, if anything else comes up, if any other cost you incur, I will take care of that. This Samaritan went the extra mile. Have you gone the extra mile with the unlovables in your life? And then Jesus asked the man point blank, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said the one who showed mercy to him. See, he couldn't even say the guy's name. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. According to the thinking of the day, the priest and the Levite were neighbor to the man who had been beaten and robbed. But they didn't act like neighbors at all. What is arresting to me, though, is that Jesus completely shifts the question, doesn't he? He says, who was a neighbor to the man? He didn't even repeat back the question that the guy asked him. The guy said, who's my neighbor? Jesus said, who was a neighbor to the man? Do you see how he flipped it over? In effect... The question as to who is a neighbor was not so important as the question to whom he was being neighborly. And it's a question that you and I need to wrestle with. We can't get away from it. The point was made, and here's the point. Are you more interested in determining who is worthy of grace and mercy or extending it? That's where I blow it. I walk around and I go to the grocery stores and I see people, I see how they dress, I see how they live, I see the kind of cars they drive and I determine they're not worthy. Or maybe I see that they're in jail and I think, well, they're not worthy. What's the point of the parable? I need to be less concerned about determining who's worthy and more concerned about dispensing grace because I'm ultimately not the judge and jury. Jesus is. And Jesus said, what does Jesus say to him? Go and do likewise. He says it to you and I today. Go and do likewise. Stop thinking about who's worthy of the grace that God has freely given to you and start being more concerned about extending and, and giving that grace, irrespective of, of whether that you think they deserve it or not. So I need to draw this to close with a question. What does Jesus want us to know and do as a result of this parable? What does Jesus want us to know and do as a result of this parable? I have four things. Four things that I want you to, five things I want you to see, sorry. Here's the first We can't save ourselves, and these are some of the fill-ins for you on your maps. We cannot save ourselves. The thrust of the passage is the questioning of Jesus by a man who wants to know how he can get to heaven. That's where it started. How do I get to heaven? Jesus responds by telling him a story that confirms his worst fears. The standard's perfection. You know, here's a guy, this lawyer, he wouldn't give some of the excuses that I've heard people today give. Some of the excuses I hear today is I'm not good enough to go to church. 
I don't have my act together. That wouldn't have been the excuse this guy gave. This guy would have said, I am good enough to go to church. I've got this God thing locked up. I have figured out all the ins and the outs. We go the opposite way, though. I'm not good enough to go to church, and here's my answer. No, you're not. None of us are. None of us that are sitting here right now are good enough to be here. We're not smart enough. We're not good-looking enough. We don't make enough money. We can't obey the law perfectly because that's the standard. God, Jesus said it. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you achieve it? No, you can't. That's why we need the gospel. And see, it, it's a part of the gospel that we often don't hear. We, we talk about Jesus' death and his resurrection, and I think that's two-thirds of the gospel. The one-third of the gospel that we often don't really talk about is that Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. He fulfilled all the laws. He didn't break one of them. He was perfect in your place. He not only substituted for you on the cross, he substituted for you when it comes to fulfilling the law. That's the gospel. He was perfect for you when you couldn't be perfect. And of course, I'm certain the people around this lawyer, and I'm certain the people around Jesus when he answered this question said to themselves, this is impossible. It is impossible. You and I cannot earn our way to heaven. We can't save ourselves. We need a savior. We need someone who will show compassion on us in our state of death and misery and who will rescue us and see that we are saved. That's the first thing. We can't save ourselves. Secondly, we can't buy God off by our religious observance. Faith is not about checking off the God box. It becomes all too easy to walk past the needy, to walk past injustice, to tolerate evil, to remain silent and protect my hide and ego and all the while think that God won't mind because I sat in church today. This is just another form of religion and Jesus' parable makes it clear that he's not impressed. We can't buy off God. We ought to be, we ought to be in church every Sunday. We ought to be in church when it's open. We ought to be in church when there's activities and events. We ought to support the work of the church with our resources, our time, our talent, our treasure. <laughs> we ought to pray. But here, this might be, a, this might be a, a new thought to some of you. God doesn't need that stuff from you. We need that stuff. We need the, 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 the gathering of the body. We need to read the scriptures. We need to pray because we don't have it right. We don't have it all together. Those are means of grace that God has given us to grow more and more like Jesus. We need the body of believers. We need the word and prayer. He doesn't need those. Do you think for one moment that when you pray you're actually telling something that God doesn't, telling him something he doesn't know? Do you think that when you trip up and you sin and, and you confess that sin that, that, you're, that you're surprising God? <gasps> oh, I didn't know that you lied. I missed that. I missed that juicy bit of gossip. He knows it all. We're not surprising in one moment. We need that prayer because it's an admission that we need him. 
God doesn't need any of that stuff. See, all the church and giving of our resources and reading the Bible and prayer, they are not the point or the end of faith. They're not the goal of our faith. They are the expression of our faith. If I really sat in the pew on Sunday and let God's word change me, it must work itself out in deeds of mercy. Not only toward those that are easy to love, but to those who are considered unlovable. If I would love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I cannot walk past the needy. I cannot ignore injustice. I can't tolerate evil. I can't remain silent in the face of error. It's just the long and short of it. Here's the third. Seek lots of grace and mercy. Seek lots of grace and mercy. Without God's grace, we are simply too selfish, too greedy, too egotistical, too thin-skinned, too resentful, too envious, too bitter, too lustful, too revengeful. Shall I go on? To even come close to loving God and our neighbor the way that is described here. See, the, the, nat- the natural gravitational pull of my life is self. We have to stop playing games with God's word and stop trying to explain it in a way that makes it manageable. Only God really, only God can really give God the love he deserves. And that's why Jesus had to be 100% man and 100% God. Because only God can really love God the way he deserves. Only God can really love the poor as they ought to be loved. That is why we have to die to ourself and allow Jesus Christ to live in and through us. And that's, that's really what Paul spends a lot of time in the epistles about. He spends a lot of time talking about what it means to be in Christ. That it, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when Michael Harvey became a follower of Jesus Christ, Michael Harvey died. And I need to decrease so that Jesus can increase. And I hope you feel the same. You need to decrease so Christ can increase. Charles Spurgeon said, let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. Number four, Jesus is the perfect good Samaritan. Jesus is the perfect good Samaritan. You know, it's really not the point of the parable, but I can't help thinking about it. I can't help thinking about where Jesus is on his journey in his, in his public ministry, where he is headed, especially in the Gospel of Luke. It's not long before he's hanging on that cross. See, just think, Jesus comes along and when nobody else stops and nobody else can heal you, he takes you up. He carries you. He pays the entire bill, not only the short-term bill, but the long-term debt so that you will not be enslaved. He pays for it all himself and he goes after the despised and the broken and the bleeding and the dead when nobody else does. And he's all doing it on the way to the cross. 
See, of course, Jesus is not telling the story of the Good Samaritan in order to say, you see, really, I'm the Good Samaritan. And yet, when you reread the entire account and where it fits into the progression of Luke, you can't help but see it. Jesus himself is the best of the best. He is the ultimate Good Samaritan who rescued us when we were about to die. In fact, not even, not about to die. I misspoke when we were dead already. We were dead. He rescued us. And here's the fifth application. And it's the hardest. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. The truth of the matter is that although salvation is never grounded in good works, it is impossible to be saved without them. It is not that the good works open the way to heaven for you. The whole parable is opposed to that. The whole theme of self-justification versus the justification of God is opposed to it. The cross is opposed to it. We can't earn our way to heaven. We can't do enough good. We can't live enough lives to do enough good to get into heaven. There's no way in which we earn eternal life by by being good enough, by loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves. On the other hand, those who are followers of Jesus remember that he is the best good Samaritan. And, and what, is our, what, is, what is our command? Im, be imitators of Christ. How are you imitating him? Here's the bottom line. We can trust in our good works for salvation or we can trust in Jesus for our salvation. The parable's pretty clear. Trusting in our works will not get us anywhere near the kingdom of God. Trusting in Jesus is what brings us to heaven. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.